Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Well, good morning, Mercy Commons. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so honored to be bringing the Word this morning and uh, thankful for the way that you have been serving and giving and participating in this season. It has been kind of a ride, honestly. It's been kind of all over the place. But I love the rhythm of this morning, having time just to dive into God's Word and in the evenings, celebrating Him, praying together, worshiping together. And so I have the honor of continuing our series in Ruth today, which is focused on God in the shadows, this idea of God being present even when we don't see Him. And last week, Sean did an amazing job leading us through chapter 3, where we saw Ruth being honored by Boaz. In a moment where she could be taken advantage of, Boaz instead honored her blessed her, gave what she needed to go on. So we get to this part of the story where Ruth asked Boaz to marry her, but we learn about a little detail that's a snag in the story, that there's another redeemer, someone else who comes before Boaz, who actually married Ruth. And so we get to the apex of the story, where everything is on the line. At this moment, Boaz is going to go and see if, she, if he can redeem Ruth. And if this redeemer wants Ruth and Naomi's land, then it's game over. But if things go his way, Ruth and Boaz can be together, and the story is going to end on a happy ending. And so today we get a master class of how Boaz navigates this idea of justice. And we get to see how he handles this challenge in a way that's both godly and honorable. And so we're going to pick up the story in Ruth chapter 4. Ruth 4 in the ESV says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. So I thought I would just tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of these sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people, if you redeem it, redeem it. But if, if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. So let's unpack this. But before I do that, I want to tell you a little bit of story about my journey around justice. And so back in high school, I went to Panama for a mission trip for the first time. Uh, it was my first time being in an environment where there was poverty. It was clear that people had not what they needed. And I remember sitting on this hillside. I was with a, a team of people and we were praying for a little girl who had chicken pox. And for, for me, chicken pox is nothing. My mom pushed us in rooms to get chicken pox so we wouldn't have it later because we had all the resources we needed to do that healthily. But she didn't. She had infections. Her house was situated on a hill and the rain was coming down the hill and washing through her living room. And so you have this girl who has not what she needs and a family in a hut and we begin to pray for her. And it was my first experience of seeing people who had not what they needed in the context of other people who had just enough to be generous and to give to her. And I began to think about the disconnect, about how much there's a divide in this situation of people who have and have not. So I get back home from this trip from Panama and I have this justice kick. I'm going to go change the world's problems. I'm going to end poverty. And so I, I got rid of stuff I didn't need. I had a hammock in my room for six months because a bed was too expensive and I needed to sleep in a hammock. All these things I wanted to do. 
I even had this sweatshirt that was a sweatshirt with a quote on it from uh, American philosopher and activist Cornel West. It said, justice, love is what justice looks like in public. That again is, love is what justice looks like in public. You want some proof? Look at uh, this photo of me in Oman. I'm in the middle of the desert in a little restaurant and there's that sweatshirt. And probably not the best idea to wear that in Oman, which is just next to Yemen. Uh, but I was pretty amped about justice. But as I journeyed with this, I began to see in different nations from Oman to Panama to just Mexico, how much poverty there was. And I began to get angry. I began to ask God, where are you in all this poverty? Where are you in all this process I'm going through? But I also got angry because I said, where are your people? Why is no one doing anything about these issues? You know, when we look at this idea of God in the shadows, this series of Ruth, you may be kind of wondering, where is God showing up in all this? Ruth has had pretty much a tough story all the way up to the point of Boaz. And just when she gets a moment, a break in the story, where she's noticed she can be married to this man who's going to take care of her, there's another guy who's going to show up and ruin it all. And so we hear about this man, this redeemer, who hasn't been mentioned before, but he's mentioned now. And what we know about this redeemer is that it's a person, a, a family member, that Boaz knows about this man. Bethlehem is in a big town, so everyone knows who this is. Even Naomi mentions that Boaz is only one of multiple redeemers, yet we're just hearing about him right now. The idea of a kinsman redeemer is not new. It's not like that just became something in Ruth, but it's a long tradition that came all the way to this point. And we can look back in Genesis 38 at Tamar, where Tamar is a widow. Her husband dies. She has no sons. And so she goes to the brother-in-law, Onan, and says, hey, will you marry me so I can have a family and a life? And the idea is that she would be protected, cared for by a family member and have an existence together. But Onan is not quite into that idea. I won't go into detail. It's a little bit graphic. But basically, Onan doesn't want to have the responsibility of another family. Doesn't want to have anything to do with Tamar. He's quite happy to let her go and waste away because eventually the inheritance would be his if he did nothing. And so we look at later that God wants to protect his people from this. He, he writes a law in Deuteronomy 25, and it talks about how a, a family member who has no heirs uh, would be redeemed by another family member and that it would be written to law protected. So now we get back to Ruth's story. The story that we have this man who is showing up, who's done nothing so far. We, we've seen Ruth looking for food, trying to find a way in this new town. And then suddenly this man shows up who's done absolutely nothing to help her. Boaz is not just fighting for love right now. He's fighting for justice. And so let's look at how Boaz fights for justice for Ruth in three major ways. The first one is Boaz fights for justice by doing what he said he would do. Now, it's not rocket science. It's not that complicated, but it's so difficult. Because in areas of justice, we want to do a lot, and we say a lot of things, but what matters is showing up and doing that thing. In the previous chapter, chapter 3, Boaz, when he learns about this idea of marrying Ruth, is saying, look, I'm going to go the next day, I'm going to go this morning, and I'm going to go find the guy and ask him. And in chapter 4, the first verse, guess what? He's at the city gates looking for this guy. He's immediate. Jesus talks about delays. You know, I think in terms of this idea of movements and the idea of having justice in our city, what actually kills movements around justice is not opposition all the time, but it's actually delay. 
Jesus warns in, in Luke's account of his gospel, he says, um, this man came to him saying, I want to follow you, uh, but let me go bury my father first. Let me go take care of that. The context is that that man who wants to bury his father, his father is probably still alive. What he's saying is, let me get all my resources together, my inheritance together, like Onan, and then I'll come follow you when I'm financially secure and my plan is perfect. And Jesus' response to this man is kind of brutal. He says, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. It's fit for the kingdom. What he's saying is, in the distractions of our world, the kingdom requires focus. It requires reaction. It requires being front-footed. And the demand of justice, of a kingdom of justice, is not distraction, but focus. In today's culture, distraction and delay are one of the greatest threats to justice and doing justice in our city. There's a saying in our legal system uh, by the late Prime Minister of England, William Gladstone. He says that justice delayed is justice denied. MLK, centuries later, uh, quotes him and his letter in Birmingham. He's in, he's in prison. He writes this letter and says, justice too long delayed is justice denied. See, with Boaz in the situation, as he's tackling, he's fighting for justice, fighting for Ruth, he doesn't delay. He doesn't let time pass when it's convenient, when it's less awkward. He shows up and he fights for her and doesn't delay. He doesn't hesitate. He knows what is right and he does it. Speaking of our justice system, the second thing we can learn from Boaz in terms of fighting for justice is to follow God's order of justice. There's a lot of things we want to do when we're passionate and we want to change everything, but there's a way and an order that God has established around justice that's biblical. So looking at this, if I was Boaz, I would probably just run the guy out of town. It would be a lot easier just to make him disappear and probably no one would say anything. But Boaz is the opposite. He doesn't take justice into his own hands. He shows up in a way that has been structured by God. And so we're going to dive into how he does that. So Boaz goes to the city gates in this chapter. So what's the importance of that location? Why, why there? He could go anywhere else in the city. Why the city gates? Well, the city gates represented the court system of Israel. The idea of the court for us is kind of different, but the gate was where a lot of traffic would go by. Everyone would kind of go in and out. And the elders of the city would sit at the gates. And in most instances, when you gathered the elders for a meeting, it was not a good thing. It was a sense of someone was doing something that wasn't in the law, and they weren't respecting the guidelines that God had set up for his people. And so you would gather the elders in a sense to kind of do court. It's almost like Judge Judy, where you get this court and everyone's looking and watching to see what will happen. But the idea is that this guy, this other redeemer, hasn't been doing anything, hasn't shown up, hasn't taken responsibility for what he's called to do as a redeemer. Justice has been delayed for too long, and Boaz is going to make him make a decision. And so the, op the options are buy the land or move on. So he gathers the community of elders. He gets the people around him. He uses the system to fight for Ruth. He doesn't take it in his own hands. But don't mistake that this story doesn't have a little bit of an angle around race. Because this is kind of happening. We can know this because she's a Moabite. Sean did a great job talking about honor and shame last week. About how that was playing in with race as well. And so no one is fighting for Ruth. Not just the Redeemer that's quiet and almost never mentioned. But none of the other people are doing much for Ruth. She's gleaning from the, from the fields by herself. There's not a sense that she's getting all the support from her family and, and, and really through Naomi's family. There's a sense that she's on her own. And so in her distress, Boaz acts. He steps up. He shows up and uses the court system to help her get justice. 
In light of the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, uh, our nation has been awakened to the reality of injustice and racially charged injustice today. And it's still impacting our communities now as we go through this process of looking at our cities and our people and saying, where are the areas where God is awakening us to respond to injustice? You know, in a sense, what has hurt me the most in this process is that it's been justice too long delayed. That this idea of there's been these crimes that have just been waiting and sitting. But now we're awake to it. Now we're saying, this is happening more often. What can we do? In my life, I had, to, I had to wrestle a little bit with this. I needed to sit with this and understand my own journey. And it has been a journey of my own experiences with this, my view of the world and justice, um, and even my wrestle with God saying, where are you in this process? There's so many voices, so many things we could do, but where are you at in this? What are you calling us as a community to do? As an elder team and as a church, we've been praying about this. Um, we believe that justice is something God has called us to do as Mercy Commons, that there's a mercy that is for everyone. And so we've hosted events at the Commons. We're actually gathering leaders soon to talk about deeper training around how do we navigate this issue of injustice and inequality? How do we respond to people even beyond just uh, African-Americans in our community, but even just the races that represent Fullerton who don't have access to some of the education they need or some of the resources, especially with COVID which has highlighted this disparity between groups of people. How can we be a bridge that connects those people? It's a lot. And we believe that God has called us to respond, but to use the system around us, um, to use the, the system that is here to leverage it for the glory of God, for his kingdom. Not waiting, not sitting back, but prayerfully, biblically using justice. It's a long journey. It's not something we're going to solve tomorrow. But what we believe is that if we're aware, if we're awakened to what God's doing, we're responding ourselves. We are inviting our neighbors and asking them what they need. We show up in ways that are practical, that God is going to use that to renew the city. And that is something that we're called to do. It may not be massive. It may not be entirely earth shattering. It may not be newsworthy, but it's something we believe is worth it. And we see that Boaz is modeling this for us in Ruth, that he's using something that's not very mm, flashy, but it's a city gate, some elders and a process will net justice. So this process of Boaz talking to this redeemer, he's in front of the elders in the city gates, and they're talking about this little piece that's a little bit of a fine print. You can get the land, you can get all this, but something happens where the redeemer says, yes, I'll take the land. Boaz asks him, will you take it? He says, yes. And if you're reading this story, your heart kind of drops a bit because you know what that means. It's over. This redeemer is going to buy the land and therefore get Naomi and Ruth. And so Boaz and Ruth won't be together. This love story that we've been waiting for it to come to an apex now is being shattered because this guy who was nowhere to be seen is now showing up and he's saying, you know what, I'll take it. But Boaz is wise. He leads with the land and then he adds a little bit to this and says, well, great, I'm glad you're going to do that. Uh, but in order to get the land, you also must marry Ruth and take care of Naomi. And the crowd is listening to this guy. They're considering this with him. He's in front of a crowd. So imagine the pressure. He's just said, I'm going to do this. And now he's hearing that also means that you're going to continue Ruth's family line. You're going to take care of Naomi. You're going to feed them. You're going to protect them. You're going to do justice for them. And in verse 6, the Redeemer says, 
I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So in this third part, we realize another element of justice is we fight for justice through radical generosity. We get the real truth about this redeemer. When he's put into a corner, forced to make a decision, and has to consider his own wealth and well-being, while also these other people who need his help, he makes a decision for himself. He says, I can't redeem this land or these people because it's going to hurt my inheritance. It's going to hurt my future. It's going to hurt my wealth. He's kind of like Onan, honestly. Onan, same thing. I'm glad to take what I want, but I don't want the responsibility because that may mean that I don't get the inheritance. Because what happens is if Onan had kids with Tamar, Tamar's kids get the land. Radical generosity is not popular, but it's vital as we fight for justice for people around us. Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, wrote, there's an inequitable distribution of goods and opportunities in this world. Therefore, if you've been assigned the goods of this world by God, and you do not share them with others, it's not this stinginess, it's injustice. The idea is that when you have the opportunity to use the resources that God has given you, and you don't give of them, you're not just being stingy, you're actually doing injustice. Radical idea, radical generosity. We're in a position to give, we're in a position to bless other people. When we see a need and we know that God has given us all the resources we need in this season and we have extra, just like Boaz, we leave some of the, the field for people to glean from. We not just stop there, we also fight for them when they're not getting the justice that they need. We use our time or energy or resources to fight for justice. Radical generosity is not just financial. It's also time. It's also attention. It's also saying no to things that are really good so we can say yes to things that matter. Today, if you're wondering what you can do to fight for justice, especially in this climate, one thing you can do that is radical is just to give, to be open-handed with what you have. Do it prayerfully. Ask God, where do you have me positioned? What do I have in my hand to give. For Boaz, it was grain. For Boaz, it was time. For Boaz, it was gathering the elders at the gate. Maybe for you, it's to organize. Maybe for you, it's to attend some events in the future, to pray, um, to show up and serve. Um, as we begin to consider reopening to our city, how can we invite our neighbors to experience the mercy of God afresh today? So what makes Boaz's actions really radical is that he's already done a ton. Like he's already given way more than he needs to. And now he's at the gates making this meeting happen. The interesting thing about the context is the law around this is actually that the woman would go fight for her rights. That if she was being withheld from, that she would show up at the city gates, they would drag this guy in. And I'm going to just read you what the verse says to do. Deuteronomy 25.8 says, Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, so the, the widow, and pull off his sandal off his foot, and then spit in his face. Okay, that's pretty brutal, that you get pulled in front of your best friends and everyone around you, and this woman takes your shoe and spits in your face. Kind of strange, but it's here. And then shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Instead of Ruth pleading at the gate for her own justice to do this whole thing, which would have been crazy for her, 
Boaz goes in her place. He stands and makes an oath and buys the land and marries Ruth. And we get to see how that ends in the next chapter. But instead of waiting for a sandal to be taken, he gives it freely to Ruth. When you read this story, it echoes of Jesus everywhere. We, we've been talking about how Ruth and Boaz, and really Boaz is the story of a greater Boaz coming. But it's the story of God unfolding in the lives of this little insignificant town in the middle of a famine. See, our story is baked into this. We are made to be in relationship with God, a provider and a protector. In the garden, there was no hunger. There was endless resources for us. And God gives us two commands, to have dominion over the land and to create families, to have land and to create families. But Adam and Eve wanted to do it their own way. They saw themselves being unjustly constrained, that it would be not enough for them to follow what God had commanded them. They need to take what's theirs to maximize their inheritance themselves. And so they rebel against God. And our father, Adam, instead of owning his mistake, instead of honoring and protecting his wife, blames her. This woman who you gave me, gave me this fruit. The direct consequences is not a coincidence. It's the land and the family are cursed. The idea that what we were made to do is now difficult. And it's not a coincidence either that in this story, Ruth has two things redeemed. Naomi's land is, is given back. We're just going to see that. And a family can be possible now because of Boaz's generosity. And that's just one family. We follow the story later into Jesus' story. And Jesus is the better Boaz and redeems a people, not just a family, but an entire people uh, out of spiritual poverty and oppression. In Matthew 28, Jesus is before the temple courts, and he's the redeemer who's going to come and redeem humanity. But the people, instead of honoring him like Boaz, drag him in front of the city gates, really the court there, and they begin to accuse him of blasphemy, of perpetuating injustice. Instead of treating him like an honorable redeemer, they treat him like an imposter. Jesus fights for inequality by showing up to the spot. He, he makes his way. He doesn't hesitate. He sets his face knowing this would happen. It wasn't a surprise that they were going to drag him and mock him. He knew it going into it. He was going to do this to the system of governance that was there to fulfill prophecy that was going to be written way before he showed up on the scene. And he gives the ultimate form of radical generosity. He didn't just give a sandal. He ends up giving his life. And he will not stop at just redeeming people as they are. He's going to redeem the land itself as well. We know that Jesus will return and restore all things to himself. This redeemer, this better Boaz, shows up on the scene. And he saves us. Like Ruth, we brought nothing to the table. Boaz benefits still. Boaz gets land out of this whole deal. Jesus shows up and gets nothing. He's honored later, but in this moment, there's nothing for him to gain in this. If you look at it from the outside, not knowing the story, why would this guy show up and redeem these people who hate him? But he does. What motivates Jesus is love. If we're to be people of justice who follow the footsteps of our creator, our justice must be driven by love. And love for God and love for neighbor. Dallas Willard, in his book, Knowing Christ Today, he wrote, Justice without love will always fall short of what needs to be done. It will never be as good as it should be. Justice without love will never do justice to justice. 
nor will love without justice ever do justice to love. It's a mouthful, but the idea here is that what will sustain us is love. When we fight for, against racism, it's his love that sustains us. When we stand for the widow, it's his love that drives us. When we protect the poor, it's all motivated by love. And a love that comes from a soul that's been redeemed by a God who has saved us. So when you're fully loved as you are, the response is to do something. It's action. The response is generosity. The result is justice. So I go back to that shirt from my time in Oman where the words on the little jacket said, justice is what love looks like in public. Mercy Commons, as we engage our city, let's demonstrate justice by loving our neighbor, by loving God to love this city well. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.